You are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Thursday edition of Locked On NBA. I'm David Locke, going to be joined by Washington Post national columnist Ben Golliver. We'll touch on some post-bubble reaction, the coaching news, and where the NBA is all going. That's all coming up on a show brought to you by rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Washington Post national columnist out of the bubble, decompressing back into reality have you had anxiety now that you've had to enter, leave the safest place on earth and come back to the madness that is America? I've been pretty much okay other than the airport experience getting out of Orlando. I think we talked about that previously where it was just, you know, going from zero to 100 surrounded by people and everybody's in close proximity. But so far, so good uh, being back in reality. It feels good just to be able to drive my car and, and get a little bit of, uh, you know, highway time just to clear my head a little bit and, and some outdoor time as well getting back to the pacific ocean which i definitely missed uh, you know all those months in central florida but i'm hanging in there and it's funny because pretty soon i'm going to be diving right back into it getting ready to write my bubble book so uh you know there's no rest for the weary i guess to put it that way it is interesting though i mean i saw and i don't know who the woman was but somebody who was there for in the bubble for espn on twitter today and you know, I, I we talked about Holly Rowe last time, and uh, thanks to Nick Angstead who filled in uh, for me. Uh, but I, I, it's interesting that as much as everybody kind of dreaded going in the bubble, it certainly has felt as though I saw Sam Amick was tweeting out something like, hey, wear a mask, damn it. Like, it was safe in the bubble. Like, there's this anxiety of actually leaving the bubble. Well, I would say that there definitely was uh, because you're just used to, you know, everything being exactly as, you know, careful – and attention to detail uh, as basically anywhere else in the country. So when you're walking around and you see people without a mask, it definitely makes you kind of jump and, and take uh, take two. But you also feel like super educated about everything, right? Like you understand, okay, I need to make sure I'm always this and I need to avoid indoor situations. Don't be eating at restaurants inside and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I feel like I got the full um, COVID explanation, you know, from their doctors and from all their rules along the way. So I have an even better idea of how I'm supposed to be living my life um, afterwards. So at least we didn't go home empty-handed, I guess is how I put it. All right, let's get to some post-basketball aspects of the bubble. I, I think there's some interesting kind of player evaluation, game trend items. What's your feeling on how valid of basketball in regards to something you'd make a decision based on for the future of the NBA, you think the game was in the bubble? Well, I think we should distinguish between the different versions of the game that we saw in the bubble, because you remember when we first got down there in those regular season games, teams were scoring 135, 140 points. It was up and down. It was even more of a track meet than it was during the regular season. You know, guys were getting 40 point nights, 50 point nights. But as we got into the playoffs, didn't we see things tighten up a lot, especially defensively? You look at how the Lakers won. Um, of course, they had some sensational offensive performances from their two stars, but I thought they mostly won it with defense and, and team defense. A similar deal for Miami, especially towards the end of that bubble. So when I look back and say, like, what was bubble ball like? Well, I think that there was different versions of it, right? When, when things really got serious, I thought the, you know, the, the defense stepped up and kind of you know, tilted, uh, tilted some of the takeaways. But, you know, if we're heading into the next regular season and they're playing in situations that aren't normal arenas without normal crowds and 
these guys are going to be, uh, you know, potentially in a, an environment that's similar to what the regular season games in the bubble uh, were like, that I expect it to be super fast, super high scoring, um, and, uh, you know, all those kinds of things, and continuing the trend that we've seen for really the last, what, five, six, seven, eight, or nine years. Um, I, I think that's probably what the start of next season is going to look like. So there's some, I thought there were some fascinating things. I, I love this league. And actually, I got to give Quinn Snyder credit for this one. Quinn Snyder's taught me more than anything else. The players will teach you what you need to know. You just have to pay attention. That's always what he says. He talks about the players are the geniuses and you need to watch them. And, and I go back. I mean, this can be a long uh, question. I apologize, but I, I think there's some context to just remember when there was that terrible thing where there was that reach. The guys would be coming off a pick and they'd flail and get that three free throws where the reach in from the player was, you know, happening as they tried to fight above the pick. And there was that like terrible foul call for like a season. Remember that Ben? Did I not describe that well enough or like, so like I actually like talked to some players about that. Well, they said, well, Hey, everyone was fighting over picks. And if they were fighting over picks and they were derailing us and, and kind of dislodging where we were going on the pick and roll, they were destroying the pick and roll. So the only way to fight that was to drive the defender more into the pick. And when they reach through, then to flail your arms and draw the foul. Like you had to do that as the offensive player. And, it, and then, right. And so there was this like progression, like the pick and roll got dominant. Players started fighting over players answered. Well, I thought we saw another one of those progressions. Like, over the last few years, basically every NBA team started playing drop big defense. 28-9 of the 30 teams were playing it this year. And it was kind of nobody could deal with it. And all of a sudden, the guards figured out, well, if you're going to drop the big, then I have to start hitting an off-the-bounce three. And we saw a proliferation of off-the-bounce threes in the bubble. Do you think that's replicable? Well, I also think that you've seen the star-level players work on that shot these last couple of years. You know, there was a couple of guys who really kind of brought it along early. That would probably circle Harden as kind of like one of the main guys, but also a Damian Lillard. But you're seeing this next version. Well, LeBron started adding it to his game. Luka has been taking him a huge volume from even deeper. And so I think that now that's becoming a skill that guys practice on during the offseason that they do feel like it has the benefit of beating that drop defender, but it also has the benefit of sucking uh, other perimeter defenders are trapped further away from the hoop, and then now you have more room to play with behind it. So for sure, and you know, you're going back to that annoying foul call. Haven't we also seen a lot of annoying foul calls on guys who are late charging out to defend those off the dribble three pointers, and then they're hitting a guy's leg or they're hitting a guy's arm on the follow through, and now you're getting the four point play opportunities or the the, the three uh, free throws. I mean, I feel like that was something we saw an awful lot in the bubble too. You know, and I think the answer. We saw Miami with the answer to the off the bounce three a little bit in the sense of now you've really got to go send two guys to the ball handler. And that's going to be the defensive answer to how you deal with Dame and how you deal with James Harden and how you deal with Steph Curry and how you deal with Donovan Mitchell and how you deal with Jamal Murray. I'm like, every team's going to have to have this offensive player and it forces you to bring two guys to the pick and roll is the next step of this. And, and I, I, at least that's what I saw. And now I think as you build your roster defensively, if you believe this to be like where what the, what we saw in the bubble to be true, then I think that you have to now start building your defensive roster knowing 
that you're going to end up with two guys on the ball at 30 feet in almost all plays. And that puts an incredible tax on the defense. For sure. Well, look at, you know, three of the last four bigs, you know, left standing. You've got Anthony Davis, who's, you know, fleet of foot, long, versatile, comfortable on the perimeter, okay when he has to switch. You've got Bam, who you could say all those same things about him. You've got Daniel Tice, who's actually a pretty darn mobile big man, you know, definitely overlooked and underrated and, and had some, offer, you know, had some uh, you know, sequences, I would say, where he got exploited that time by, by Bam in the Eastern Conference Finals, but still played a really important role for Boston's, uh, you know, postseason run. I mean, all those guys are, are comfortable away from the hoop, and so is that going to be the new model, what, what people want from their fives, uh, you know, when you're defending at a very high level in, in the playoffs? Uh, I'm not sure it's completely new because we've seen guys like Draymond five years ago. We've seen Houston try to do to switch everything with the small ball and everything else. But um, I do think that that is how defense is being played at its best at the highest level right now in the playoffs. I think that's a completely fair takeaway. I don't think it's a, a coincidence that three of the best teams remaining with three of the best defenses remaining in the playoffs out of the final four teams all kind of share that attribute. That's a really interesting point. That Your two choices are what I said which was you either bring two guys to the ball to get it out of Dame or out of someone's hands or your thought, which is you just switch it, right? You go to the Houston five-man switch. You go to the Draymond Green five-man switch. It it makes, you know, was Houston, Houston switching defense might actually be the answer here on all this, which then if you're switching everything like size, you're going to end up being smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, or you or you're just playing bigs who can function as smalls, which I would look at Anthony Davis and Bam in that category, right? Where like, uh, you know, I, I feel totally fine if they're guarding one, and if they have to switch out onto a point guard, it's not really an island. It's not necessarily a huge matchup advantage for almost any point guard in the league. And so, you know, it, it's not like you have completely interchangeable lineups. I mean, you still have one guy who's way taller, way longer than the other players in your in your group. But he can still function, um, you know, in that way, vers- uh, you know, from a versatility standpoint. Um, yeah, I think that, like, you know, Denver is the exception of the of the final four teams. Um, I mean, how do you feel like they hold up to the standard? Like, I guess if you were their coach, would you be feeling great about the notion of trying to defend the off the dribble three pointers if Jokic is your guy and he's not going to be able to cover ground? I mean, I definitely thought there was times in that series against the Lakers where he was, you know, not even just one step late, you know, on the perimeter rotation stuff. He's two steps late, and, and he's fouling Anthony Davis, trying to close out hard on him, and he's just out of position. There's a wide-open shot uh, for somebody on the perimeter because he can't get there. Like, I feel like there were times where he was actually a liability, as great as he was throughout the playoffs, um, where defensively the, the Lakers were able to pick on him. I think that's a good point. I mean, you start, you know, you're going to have you start – looking at every team in the NBA and thinking to yourself like, well, who has the off the bounce three as one part of it? And then your part two is who has the defense to deal with it. I thought Miami did something interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll touch on it here in just a second. Then we'll talk about the coaching changes. I thought, I thought Miami did something and, and I'll try to explain it and, and just try to figure out whether that's the answer of where we're heading or not here in just a second. As we continue with Ben Golliver, Washington post NBA columnist today's show, Brought to you by Rock Auto. There is absolutely no reason for you to be manipulated by what's in stock. That's why Rock Auto has a unique and remarkably easy to navigate catalog 
that will find you all the parts for your vehicle. Choose the brand, specification, and prices for your vehicle and find out which you want to use. From brake parts to tail lamps to motor oil to new carpet to windshield wipers. It's easy clicks away and it's delivered directly to your door. Best of all, the prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and always the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. So why spend up to twice as much on some parts just because they don't have anything else in stock? Go to rockauto.com, see all the parts available for your car or truck right locked on in their how-did-you-hear-about-us box so they know who sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. It's rockauto.com. It's back. The NBA Chad Ford Big Board. That's right. Chad Ford's NBA Draft Big Board is back. And episodes coming this week. If you're getting ready for the NBA Draft, which is just months, about a month and a half or so away, maybe a month away now, uh, Make sure you grab the Chad Ford NBA Big Board. It's back. By the way, I've been watching some of the draft prospects, Ben. I know you're not there yet. Uh, I know they're talking about it's not a top-heavy draft. I have generally been super impressed by the players I'm watching around the 20th. Like, there's something to be excited about if you draft one of those players that I've looked at, whether it's Josh Green or Jaden McDaniels or Jalen Smith, in some capacity. I'm not sure they're all going to make it you never know but there have been a lot of drafts Ben where I've been breaking down players at 14 15 16 17 and guess what thinking I don't like any of these guys so this is really different to me the depth of this draft I feel like there's many years and they're just like a hard boss at like the spot 11 or 12 where you're just like woof you know well you just broke the news to me that the chat sports podcast is back this is amazing I can't I was I was uh, so excited when it came back and then the pandemic hit so that's fantastic well he's was you know he wrote his book it's about peace and conflict and um dangerous love is the book and th- there was a lot of that that needed to be addressed so he took some time off and 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 worked <laughs> on those things and has some incredible stories he's gonna have guests on every week tony jones from the athletic uh john hollinger from hollinger and duncan podcast brad roland of our own locked on uh, it does incredible draft work on Locked On Hawks and Jeremy Wu of SI. So all those guys will be kind of rotating guests with him. All right, back, you know, remember the old days when they used to throw it in the post to uh, Akeem Olajuwon and then you were forced to double and you doubled from the outside in, right? And then they kicked it out and then you ended up in full rotation and the guy who like doubled had to eventually get back to the last pass and either did or didn't make it in time before Sam Cassell or Kenny Smith shot a three, right? Like, or Matt Bullard, let's give Matt Bullard, right? That was the old way, right? (laughs) I felt like the Miami Heat's defense really against Kemba Walker, but also at times against the Lakers was like the inverse of this. So that you doubled at 30 feet and then started that exact same rotation and you hope that your guy got back to the guy in the post in time. Like, it's kind of, I almost feel like we're just actually doing the same thing. We've just flipped the court because now we're worried about the three as much as we are anything else. Well, for sure. You've got so many more three-point threats on the court in all those kinds of lineups. You know, by the way, one other guy we didn't mention with the, the off-the-dribble threes that we should have is Jason Tatum. You know, and yeah. I expect that to be an even bigger weapon for him. Um, next season, but not only do you have more perimeter threats, but you have fewer guys who are skilled post-up scorers, right? So, like, what is the expected value if there's four passes around to a guy 
who gets the ball on the block and there's one or two defenders rotating back to try to contest that shot. Like, if not as good as a wide open three in the corner, that's for sure. You know, that's a pretty easy math equation. So, um, yeah, there, there's no doubt the, the geometry of the rotations on defense have changed. All right. Is there a move away from analytics right now in the NBA? Well, why do you say that? Well, I don't think of Stan Van Gundy as being particularly analytics-based. At least certainly he wasn't as a GM, and I don't maybe he is as a head coach. He was originally with that Orlando team. Um, Jeff Van Gundy's being talked about in Houston, though it's not quite clear what they're doing. That feels a little bit, I don't know, like it just... I don't know. I feel like maybe not. Maybe just Daryl Morey resigning. I don't know. Is any thought on that? Or you think, I mean, Nate Bjorkman is from the Iowa Energy in the G League, and that was one of the teams, and then spent time with Nick Nurse, and he's the new head coach in Indiana. So I'm assuming he's pretty high-level analytics. Um, And frankly, you know, Stan Van Gundy before Detroit, when he was in Orlando with Dwight Howard, that team was pretty high-level analytics. So maybe that's this is not true, but it just feels like there's a little, I don't know. Is that a unfair observation on my end? Well, it's interesting because Stan Van Gundy, I think for a while there, when they were, you know, playing small, quote unquote, just by having Eden Turkoglu at the four in Orlando and shooting so many threes. I mean, they were one of the teams that really got up a lot of three-pointers earlier than almost everybody, including sort of like, uh, you know, kind of before Houston's peak. Um, they were viewed as sort of like cutting edge and, okay, oh, you have to really take these guys seriously. You know, there, there's so much outside in with their attack. And I do think that, you know, Stan Van Gundy, the executive, got in the way of Stan Van Gundy, the coach, you know. And I think that he was looking at, like, short-term solutions, a lot of times bigger names. He just kind of wanted the talent, almost regardless of fit, to try to make it work in Detroit. And, and that proved to be his undoing. I think even more than, like, trying to modernize or anything like that down in New Orleans, I think the main reason why they hired him is because they wanted somebody to sort of you know, teach Zion Williamson how to be a professional, how to be a leader, and hold him accountable and help him reach his full potential. And I think from you know, Stan Van Gundy's personality perspective, his experience perspective working with you know, really high-level players, you know, number one overall pick, guys who de- developed into defensive player of the year, all-star level guys, I feel like that's why that was a fit. You know, I almost wonder – does New Orleans even get in the mix for a Stan Van Gundy if they don't have Zion Williamson? And then is Stan Van Gundy even interested in that job if Zion Williamson isn't the magnet? You know, to me, it's almost like he's going there to coach Zion, and they're able to get him because they have Zion. And I, I think that that's not even going to be that much of an analytics question around that. I think it's almost like a, a superstar molding question more than anything. What do you think of a fit of Stan Van Gundy in New Orleans? I like him pretty well. Um, I think that he was one of the, the most established names uh, out there for sure. Now, if you look at their track record of hiring coaches um, in New Orleans, uh, he's probably the best coach that franchise has ever had. Like it's him or, or probably Monty Williams, right? And, and so I think from that standpoint, uh, they've got to be feeling good about it. I think philosophically, uh, at least if you're going by their tweets and, and some of their political expressions, uh, we would say that David Griffin and, and Stan Van Gundy are, are pretty well aligned. And I think that Stanford Gunny's got, um, he's got the X's and O's. I think he's got the communication ability. I think he can be a height man for his players, but I also think he can be really tough on his guys. And I think both Zion and um, Lonzo Ball both kind of need some of that tough love. You know, I mean, coming out of that bubble experience to me, I just felt like uh, there was a lot of quitting going on on the court from the Pelicans. 
I didn't really feel like they were completely bought into the, the, the team concept. And I think that Sam Van Gundy will be able to establish that. I think even in Detroit, where he didn't have the best talent, and that's a tough losing environment, um, at least in the early days when Reggie Jackson was still healthy, I still felt like they had an identity. They weren't always the, the winningest team. They weren't like this, you know, fun team to necessarily root for. But I think if he's looking at this New Orleans job, he's thinking, look, this is way more talent than I had to um, deal with uh, in Detroit. This is way more upside. If I can get through to Zion and be the coach that kind of guides his development, the sky is the limit. And all these other questions about do they have veterans who might be on the trade block, I mean, all those kinds of things will work itself out as long as he can kind of turn Zion into the guy he's supposed to be. So I think uh, it's actually a pretty appetizing job. I think a lot of coaches, including Sam Van Gundy, would look at it and say, well, they underperformed, especially in the bubble. Um, you know, lots of their key guys did not perform to their potential. And uh, I think he probably goes in there with a little bit of a savior complex. Like, I could be the guy to turn this around. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that job's – that's been a terribly underperforming team. Analytically, every year they're supposed to be great. Um, and they underperform, and f- at some point, that's on the coach, right? Like, when all the players combine to this, and so th- I think that team's loaded, and, I mean, it's great. You know, who's not making the playoffs in the West next year is just the most incredible question, right? Because, I mean, you've got to figure New Orleans is in, so, like, is Oklahoma City, the, the just take Oklahoma City out because we think they're going to rebuild since they didn't rebring back Billy Donovan? Well, then maybe that's the answer, but that, that still leaves the Golden State Warriors are in the playoffs too. So we still got another team that's going to get knocked out of this, uh, out of the Houston, Utah, Dallas, Portland mix. Well, can I float Houston as being that team? Um, I'm not going to guarantee it, but I don't like at all what's happened there. I mean, them losing Daryl Morey, uh, Mike D'Antoni deciding, hey, he's had enough. I mean, both those guys are so competitive and they seem so close to, to really getting over the hump in Houston that they only walk away if there's something, you know, seriously wrong internally or if they both reach the conclusion that sort of the title window has closed. And I think both those guys have such important stability to that organization, the communication factor uh, with James Harden, but also just creating a, a structure where you can turn over such a high percentage of your offense to the superstar and everybody else can stay relatively happy around him. I think it's going to be very, very difficult to kind of maintain the level of chemistry and, and team camaraderie you need to play the way that those guys have become accustomed to playing if you take both Daryl Morey and Mike D'Antoni out of that mix. To me, I think they're in a situation, Houston, where like they're kind of 50-50 to me to make the playoffs next year, which is crazy to say if you have like a, a perennial MVP candidate like a Harden. But I think if he misses a couple of weeks with an ankle or if they go through one of those long ruts like they've had over these last couple of years, I just think that, uh, you know, just – not having everybody on the same page, not having the architect and the vision there in Daryl Murray to, you know, to be able to pull people back together during tough times. I think that thing could go sideways. And not to mention PJ Tucker needs a, a contract. And we don't know how that's going to play out. I could absolutely see Houston being one of those teams on the, uh, the outside looking in. And there's others that are pushing for it. It's not just Golden State. It's Phoenix. It's Memphis. All those teams want a shot at it. And they've got some young talent on the upswing, you know, and some really hungry players. I think for Houston, uh, you know, they're absolutely exposed and vulnerable here. And I think after this coming season, it's only going to get darker. It's only going to get worse. Oh, then it means it's time to play Would You with Ben Golliver. And we'll do that next. Would You? Oh, what is Would You? We'll find out. Would You have the greatest 
protein, healthiest protein, best tasting protein bar? You bet you would because it's Built Bar, but that's not the game we're going to play. We're going to play a different game with Ben Golliver in a moment, but I'm going to tell you about Built Bar right now. It is the best tasting protein bar ever, whether it's caramel brownie or cookies or cream or cherry barcia. What do you decide your favorite flavor is, Ben? Uh, one of the peanut butters. I feel like there's three different peanut butters. There's peanut butter, peanut brownie, butter. Peanut, peanut butter. One of the peanut butters is my favorite. Ah, they're healthy. They're for the health-conscious guy like Ben Golliver. They're, you lose or maintain weight while indulging in a delicious treat. Low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, high-fiber. In fact, when you compare them to the leading men's brand bars, it's stunning what Built Bar does for you. So check out a flavor, Built Bar. You won't believe your mouth. It's that good and instead of 250 calories it's 130 instead of six fat grams it's half that instead of 38 carbs it's four instead of 21 sugar grams it's four and seven more grams of protein it's almost too good to be true and then when you taste it it's even better and if you put it in the freezer it's even better go to builtbar.com promo code is locked on for 20 percent off your next order that's builtbar.com Promo code locked on for 20% off your next order. Ben Golliver, are you ready? I'm ready. Would I what? Trade for Russell Westbrook, 41 million, 44 million, and 47 million the next three years. Anyone. Like, uh, just I, I think fundamentally, w- would uh, you? I mean, don't you think New York or Chicago could talk himself into it? I don't know. I don't, I'm asking, if you're Chicago, would you be willing to do that? Well, look, they've already got some bad contracts on hand there. I also feel like the asking price for Westbrook is not going to be very high. I think everybody's sort of come to terms with where his value is at. Um, I think if you're Houston, it's interesting. Like, are you almost hot committed with him for one more season? after the way last year played out, because he did have a good stretch there for a couple months during the season before the injuries and before you know his bout with coronavirus kind of threw him off during the playoffs. If you trade him now, does that anger James Harden? I almost wonder, do they need to keep him for one more year? And then maybe he gets a little bit easier to trade uh, next summer. But I don't think he's untradeable, if that's the question. I think that you could construct a scenario where, you know, some lottery teams out there that really have nothing else going on could talk themselves into having a marketable player, sell a few jerseys, get people a little bit excited, just have a buzz, you know, ride the ride the roller coaster ride for a year or two and then move forward. I, I think it could happen. Otto Porter and Thaddeus Young for Russell yeah, Westbrook. I mean I mean, is that is that terrible? Like what's gonna sell more jerseys, you know? I mean you're you're gonna get something out of the Westbrook experience. You're gonna get uh, more national television appearances. What's tricky about these kinds of questions, though, is what we can't say is you'll sell more tickets, right? Because we don't know if they're going to be able to sell any more tickets. So, like, is that a factor here in terms of when are you going to be able to get fans back in stands that prevents some owners from, you know, taking a, a risk or a gamble like that? Because if you knew you could trade for Westbrook and, you know, start selling some season tickets around that, it might make you more inclined to do it. If you can't sell tickets because you can't have, you know, more than 5,000 fans in your arena – sort of what's the point is this season become a little bit of a wash. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all. if just like the uncertainty around COVID and the lack of, um, you know, known revenue sources, especially from a ticket sales perspective, winds up shaping some of the strategies that, you know, teams pursue. For example, I could see a lot of teams, if you're not a contender, 
I can see a lot of teams just kind of punting this offseason and looking forward to next year. Julius Randle, Wayne Ellington, Alfred Payton, and maybe R.J. Barrett. Probably too much. <laughs> well, you're, you're not you're not trading R.J. Barrett, but everybody else in that roster, I feel like, is uh, so is Taj Gibson, Taj Gibson, Julius Randle, Wayne Ellington, and Alfred Payton for Russell Westbrook. Uh, I think uh, I think New York does it. You know, and I'm not. Why not? There's, and if you're Houston, only Julius Randle's contract is left for next year. Do you do it if you're Houston? If, uh, yeah, I do. Personally, well, first of all, you have to talk to Harden. If he says no, don't trade him under any circumstances, then you can't trade him. If he says, hey, I understand we're going through a retooling period. Uh, you know, I'm okay with it. I'm open to it. Then you can kind of pursue that type of deal. It's the old Sam Presti thing. If you trade one big contract into four smaller contracts, you can flip those four smaller contracts in future deals and find a way to get draft picks out of it or whatever else. So I would do it. I just see no way. They have no ceiling for me at this point. Houston doesn't. It uh, doesn't matter what coach they hire. doesn't matter what direction they go. I just think that their title window has completely closed. I think they're now a bubble playoff team. And I think that, you know, ultimately, if we fast forward to next offseason, I think the big question is, is it, is it time to trade James Harden? Either because you need to rebuild because you can't really offer a winning, uh, you know, a winning franchise around him, or because he starts to look around and say, you know what, this has kind of run its course. D'Antoni's not here. Daryl's not here. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to win it here with, with Westbrook. I need to look for something else. All right. Would you trade, if you were a val, if you were a good team, would you trade for Russell uh, for James Harden? I would consider it, but I actually think you know it's so tricky to just drop him onto a current right. uh, situation. Like you know, imagine Miami, right? Like that's just really difficult to make work money wise. But then locker room wise, now he's the alpha. It's tricky. I actually think a more likely scenario for Harden would be sort of like what LeBron did when he arrived at the Lakers, where you trade Harden to a, a, a situation that's kind of a lottery team that's got a few young pieces that can make him the face of it. And then he's basically going there with the idea that like, okay, we're going to rebuild this thing around me. At least there's some assets to work with. Maybe you're not going to put those assets together and get an Anthony Davis like LeBron did, but at least you've got kind of like a a blank slate to start with. I feel like that would actually be hard as next move because you can't really just drag and drop him and put him on the Raptors or the Celtics or the Heat. I mean, that's just not going to work. Let me, let me throw one just because I think it's interesting. If you're Utah, would you trade Mike Conley for James Harden? Yeah, definitely. What? Well, I don't know. Like, what are you? like, are you, I don't know. You're, th- you're, you're at. You've got Donovan. You're. It's the idea that you're. I mean, it's probably Mike Conley at thirty-four million and somebody else, right? I mean, your other pieces are irrelevant. I'm just trying to say, like, that seems one-sided. But you're putting James Harden, like. I do agree with your initial point. Like putting James Harden on a roster the way he plays right now is not an easy concept. Well, I'll say this. You don't make that trade without running it by Donovan Mitchell first, right? But I still think if you're Donovan Mitchell and you have the opportunity to play with um, Harden and now this idea is, hey, you're not going to be a first or second round playoff team in the next couple of years. Now you're going to be a team that everybody expects to go to the Western Conference Finals or the Finals every year. That starts to sound pretty good, you know, and, Look, that's going to require some sacrifices, but, you know, finding a player like Harden, MVP caliber player, those guys don't come along very often. And, 
I think the, the harder sell would be, okay, does Harden want to go play in, in Salt Lake City if he's sure. going to buy into that? And then once he becomes a creation down the road, is he going to stay? I think that part becomes a question. But I, I do think if you're a – you know, I would consider Utah kind of a second-tier team right now, you know, not an A-list contender, but in, in that second tier. I think teams like that or Denver – they should be thinking well, what, about it. Well, yeah, if mean, you're Denver, do you trade? That was my next question. Do you trade Gary Harris and Will Barton for James Harden? Oh yeah, for sure. I do it. I do it. Yeah, why not? See, I think you Denver. I think Denver shouldn't do it because now you're taking the ball out of Jokic's hands, and Jokic is one of the great playmakers of the league. Yeah, I look. I mean, maybe I've got. I've been listening to too much Daryl Morey over the years, but I just kind of bet on the talent. You know, like it might not work. And there could be some clear compromises and someone might have to be, you know, wind up being the short stick. But if you're giving me three guys who are all-star level players on the same team and I'm the Denver Nuggets, how am I ever going to get that third star? Like, this is a rare opportunity. Go out there and do it. If you're the Celtics, would you trade Gordon Hayward? And doesn't matter. Yeah, some for, for anything. <laughs> but Gordon, Gordon Hayward on a one-year deal for James Harden for his three years. And you got Tatum, you got Kemba. You got Jalen Brown. Like, Jalen Brown doesn't want to be the fourth fiddle to 36 possessions a night to James Harden. Yeah, I mean, what I would do there is then I would, I would trade Kemba. I would try to find another deal to get rid of him. And then now it's Harden one, uh, Brown two, Tatum three. And that's a squad, you know. And that's a, that's a really, really nice thing. See, I don't think this is I, – I think Harden's wonderful, and I'm actually one of the few people who, like, like to watch him, and I think he's an absolute basketball genius. But I, he's got to be, for all these conversations, like I'd ask Donovan Mitchell, I'd ask, like, I'd ask James Harden, like, are you willing to play in a different fashion than you've been playing? Well, I, I think that's an open question because he has become so comfortable doing that. He did show some level of uh, compromise and rebalancing with Westbrook, especially when Westbrook was playing well. And I think that he's got a pretty versatile game, and he just became so locked into that particular style of play because that's what Houston was preaching. Um, I think he could actually function in a lot of different roles successfully. Now, is he going to be Clay Thompson running around off the ball all day long? No, <laughs> definitely not. But I think he's got a pretty versatile, uh, you know, on the ball or off the ball shooting ability. Um, I, I don't think you necessarily have to have him out there trying to chase 40-point uh, nights and playing him 38 minutes a night and all that kind of stuff. Like, you could easily scale that back during the regular season. And if you're him, you should start to think about that because, you know, he's, he's at that point where, you know, the 30s, uh, you know, looking ahead, like he's going to want to you know, find a way, whether it's, you know, a full load management or not, you're going to want to scale back at least somewhat to extend your prime as long as possible. And I also just think like they took things as far as it could possibly go in Houston, whether or not, you know, their formula was good enough to win a title, they will always maintain yes. Um, you know, and, and their haters will always say, look, you came up just short, it didn't work. Uh, but I don't see it working anymore, right? Like, you kind of have to look forward from here going forward rather than living in the past of 2017 and 2018. And if you're hardened, you got to start thinking about what's your next chapter, what does it look like? And, you know, just trying to imagine playing the exact same way you played with the same attitude and you're the man on a different team with better players, uh, that's not going to work. You know, you're gonna, there's going to have to be some level of give and take there. Otherwise, you can just stay in Houston and, you know, compete for seven and eight seats for the next five years. That sounds like a lot less fun than, than trying to, uh, you know, put something together somewhere else. 
That is Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. I'm David Locke. Thanks very much for tuning in. Anthony and Adam will be with you tomorrow. Check out Rejecting the Screen. They've had a bunch of really fun interviews. And as I mentioned, Chad Ford, the big board is back. Big board 2.0 comes out on Friday on the Lockdown Podcast Network.